0: On today's episode, we talk about Jason Massey and Delmore Anholt Jr. You're
1: listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. And welcome to Bad and the Boondocks. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Dan. And I'm Drew. And as always, we are super glad that you're here listening. Yes. Um. Please keep the reviews coming. We are loving the good reviews we've been getting, but I need for everyone that is listening, if you have not left a review, please take the few seconds, seconds. or minute that it takes and leave a good review. Yes,
2: we love going back over them and... Hearing them.
1: That really really helps (laughs) out the show and gets us out there where other people can (coughs) find us. Also, go to our website and connect with us. You can connect with us through Facebook, through Twitter. Yeah. You
2: can email. At at Bad Boondocks. That's our Twitter.
1: Facebook is just Bad in the Boondocks. We have a page on Facebook. Like it. Join it. Yeah. Um, this episode going to be a little long, I think. Oh yes, I'm also sorry because I sound like utter shit because I'm sick as can be, which I think I got from Drew, but... The difference being that whenever he was sick, he
2: he whenever he was sick for about a day for me. Are you that, are you really that, kidding? Me? No, for me act.
1: No, for me I it was, was days, still the whole time yes, he was up at the mountains.
2: No, but I was still up driving you around wherever you wanted had to, to go. go get
1: you medicine.
2: Yeah, but I took you to Tuesday morning and Burks and stuff like that that you wanted to go to, even though that I didn't want to go. But I anyway, but I, said, I got okay. him
1: all kind of medicine and stuff, and he ain't even got the medicine here for me to use because you don't know where it is
2: (laughs) you act just like well mine's going to be on Jason Eric Massey and he was born January 7th 1973 to two parents with severe substance abuse issues his father abandoned him at a very young age and his mother was an alcoholic and was abusive The birth of him wouldn't affect her lifestyle at all. She would leave her toddler son in the car while she went into clubs. Two years later, she had a daughter. For minor infractions, she would beat them severely with a wooden paddle or a belt. There was no food left out and all of it was hidden in her room. And if she found them sneaking out to try to steal the food, she would beat them. She moved constantly, staying just a step ahead of landlords looking for payment. At times, they were homeless, living in a car. It looked very suspicious because Jason and his siblings would show up at school, thin, hungry, dirty children with unexplained bruises. His mother would bring a constant stream of men into their lives, and often the children would be left alone with these men. One of these men actually sexually assaulted Massey. By the age of nine, Massey was full of rage, and he was big enough to release it on people or animals smaller than him. He savagely beat a younger child with the tree branch, and also began torturing animals. After the beating of the child, Massey strangled and mutilated a cat. For the rest of his life, he would engage in animal torture and murder. Now he's in his preteen years and the mutilation and torture would become even more twisted into his sexual fantasies. By 14, he was drinking and taking drugs and fantasizing about demons and power. He developed a fascination with fires and started making a lot of small ones. In high school, he became obsessed with a girl who didn't return his feelings. Massey never had and did not believe in normal relationships. He began stalking the girl, calling her house. He killed her dog and painted the blood on her car. He had really branched out from just the, like, killings of cats and dogs and cows. keeping cows. their Yeah, he killed cows, too. Keeping their skulls as trophies. Some where was he keeping the skulls?
1: Because a cow skull is pretty large. We will get to that. Okay, because did nobody see that? We will get to that.
2: Um... It is said that he had a journal around this time keeping everything that he did in it. His mother found it when he was 18 and had him committed, but he was soon released and started back with his animal torturing. He idolized Charles Manson, (coughs) Ted Bundy, and Henry Lee Lucas, and he even talked about young girls in his journal in the same way That he described as animal killings. His family knew this but didn't really think that he was a serial killer or wanted to be one, but that's the exact opposite. Being a serial killer was his plan all along. He wanted to be a famous serial killer like the ones he looked up to. He practiced on animals, keeping his trophies in a cooler and he plotted and planned until he found his first victim. In 1993, Massey met 13-year-old Christina Benjamin. Christina in- innocently flirted back with Massey as he looked innocent and charming. July of that year, Massey told his friends, Christopher Nolan, that he had met a girl and was in love. He said he wanted to kill her, cover up like one of his animals but he was in love with her. He was stopped by police for a traffic offense. In the car, he had knives and the body of a dead cat with a rope tied around his neck. July 23, 1993. James King heard a sound late at night, a car beeping his horn. He looked outside and saw his 14-year-old son, Brian, run out to talk to the driver of a tan car. James went to the restroom and when he returned, the car was gone and he assumed Brian had got
1: gone out with him. No. No. If it's late at night and somebody beeping the horn... Well, he did go out with him. Well, yeah, but I'm saying that but ain't I'll gonna get, happen. But I'll get to that. Because I'm gonna go outside and tell you to get your ass back inside. Well, I don't
2: know why he would just go to the restroom. And that's and why you're up. still alive. Well, it wasn't until the next morning that he realized his 13-year-old stepdaughter, Christina, was gone as well. James King and his wife, Donna Benjamin, waited to see if the kids would return. Because at that time, the police didn't worry about missing teenagers. What year was this? Um, 1993. Okay. But when Brian and Christina stayed gone for a full day, James and Donna reported them missing. On July 28, 1993, in Telaco, Texas, in Ellis County, police respond to a animal cruelty call. Ellis County Sheriff's Department arrived to find a mutilated calf behind a pizza restaurant. A young blonde male had been seen running away and he left his car behind. A tan Sudan that was towed. Sudan. Is it Sudan or Sudan? Sudan. Sudan. Yeah, Yeah, Sudan. That's what it is. Um, At the time, they had no clue it might be related to the disappearance of the two teens. July 29th, just a day later, there was another shocking discovery in Teleco. Next to a remote highway work crews found the nude body of a young girl she had been shot with a point twenty-two pistol stabbed I love
1: it point
2: .22 what is it then a 22, caliber. a .22 caliber pistol whatever I say .22 so whatever she had been stabbed decapitated and her hands were removed both head and hands were missing and her body had been shockingly
1: mutilated. Well, I would say with the head being gone and the hands, that would be mutilated.
2: She had been disemboweled. Her body was covered in long incisions. It was like an autopsy had had been done on her, exposing her organs. Her thighs and genital and (laughs) genital had long, intricate carvings, and her nipples had been cut off. The extensive injuries made identification very difficult, and the usual methods of dental records or fingerprints were unavailable. Not far, a second body was discovered. Fourteen-year-old Brian had been shot twice in the back of the head with a twenty caliber pistol. His body was fully clothed and not mutilated, and Brian's wallet was his library card. The Sheriff's Department contacted his father, who told them that his son was missing, then asked about Christina and was she the girl with him? Donna and James told the police that Christina had recently broken a foot, and X-ray records confirmed the fractures of Christina and the Jane Doe from Teleco matched. On the barbed wire fence nearby, police also found strands of blonde hair that were consistent with Christina's hair, providing even more identification. Due to the small size and rural nature of Ellis County, Dallas County Crime Lab provided assistance. At the crime scene, they discovered a blonde hair on Brian's king leg that did not match him or Christina. Stuck to a sneaker was a single tan fiber belonging to the interior of a japanese make vehicle. Meanwhile, police were processing the tan Subaru... Is it sedan or Subaru?
0: No, wait, there's a Is sedan that two different
1: cars? It's a type of vehicle. A Subaru is a name of a vehicle. Well, I think it's the same, but it's not spelt anything alike. <laughs> is it the
2: same type of car though? A
1: Subaru would be considered a sedan. Okay. Well,
2: the tan sedan. Okay. But it's a Subaru.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. That gets, lets us know exactly what kind of that would be like a Ford Mustang.
2: Yes, that's okay. exactly
1: how it is. A sedan. But a Ford Mustang is considered a Subaru sedan, a compact car.
2: Yeah. Well. Anyways. It was seized during the calf mutilation investigation. Inside, they found three bloodstains. In the trunk was a bloodstained leaf. There was a roll of duct tape with blood on it, a hammer, a hatchet, and a receipt for twenty-two caliber ammo. A bracelet was dropped by the young blonde man running from the scene of the calf mutilation with the name Jason on it. So, right here, they had- Now, what
1: had his name on it? Jason. Yeah, but what was that written on? The
2: bracelet. And he dropped it. He's an idiot. Idiot. He's a stupid idiot. idiot. So, right there, they had so much- Not to mention
1: that you go outside of the house and honk the freaking horn for him to come out.
2: Exactly. That is the most stupid thing. But almost immediately- To be a serial killer, I
1: mean, he's not going to get very far doing stuff like that.
2: No, he's not. And I'll tell you what his- I'm not going to tell you right now, but I will get to it, what his goal was. Oh, probably like 100 or something. No way, I'll tell probably you. Probably 500. Little, I will tell you in a little bit. 400? I will tell you in a little 250. bit. 250. Almost immediately, police receive- An anonymous call that they should look at Jason Massey. 130? He did go around talking about how he wanted to murder and mutilate young girls, so of course someone's going to call. They heard he had been seen the day of the murders at a local car wash vacuuming his tan Subaru. 50. Oh my god. I will tell you in a little bit. Okay. When the story broke out on the news, the owner remembered Massey being there and called police who seized the contents of the car wash vacuum. In them, they found an appointment card from Massey's probation officer and multiple strands of Christina's hair in a bloody red bandana. To to determine how long the victims had been dead, a forensic entomologist did an experiment.
1: 700. (sighs)
0: Damn
2: it. Technically, that's right, but I'll tell you how long of a span time he said. To determine how long. Oh, yeah. He studied the maggots found on the bodies and hatched his own to see what time they would match. This concluded that Christina and Brian had been dead two days before they were found. They had been killed the same night they had been picked up in the tan car. Police learned that Massey's cousin owned a point. <laughs> a 22 caliber pistol that Massey had borrowed multiple people had seen Massey with the gun the walmart clerk who had sold the bullets two knives and handcuffs to massey was able to id him at massey's house police found the handcuffs knife box and newspaper articles he had cut out about the crime the fiber on Brian's shoe matched the interior of Massey's car. The blood on the car seats was tested and confirmed to come from Brian and Christine. Christine had agreed to sneak out with Massey. What I'm thinking is that she wasn't nervous, so she asked her brother to come with him. She probably thought that in case something happened, that um the brother would be able to protect her. Massey told them, uh, took them to a secluded area and shot Brian two times in the back of the head while still sitting in his car. Christine jumped out and tried to get away, but Massey caught her, shot her, and drove her back to the car. She got shot in the head and she was still alive, so he stabbed her multiple times to finally kill her. Massey smirked while being arrested. He basked in the attention and that followed, coming from the media frenzy. There was a mountain of evidence, but in small pieces. Put together, the pieces made a whole picture, but conviction was not a surefire thing. It was a circumstantial case, even if the circumstances were damning. Then, during the trial, a huge turnaround came. A hunter in the woods stumbled upon a rusty cooler. Opening it revealed Massey's trophy case. In the cooler were 31 skulls of animals and a set of four spiral notebooks. These notebooks were titled Slayer's Book of Death. Oh my And they were ramblings, the fantasies, the plans, and recollections of Jason Massey. It was his blueprint for murder and mutilation. He detailed his crimes against animals. He particularly liked strangling them and decapitating them so that he could keep their skulls. Massey wrote that killing gave an adrenaline rush, a high, a turn-on, and a love to mutilate. Massey wrote for his love of serial killers and planned to reach 700 victims in 20 years. (sighs) Well, that is 20 years. That's a pretty long time, but that's also a lot of people. He named girls he wanted to add to the list. The journal starts with his fantasies of rape, torture, mutilation, and cannibalism, but then moves into specific planning. Massey wrote that he wanted to grab society by the throat and shake them with terror until they're awake and realize what's up so that they will remember who I am, when and why I came their way. Both sides only had a single day to process the new evidence. For the state, it was exactly what they needed, a glimpse into the mind of a gruesome serial killer. For the defense, it was devastating. The jury only needed 15 minutes to convict Massey of capital murder. After the verdict, the jury learned more about Massey's background and his crimes against animals and robberies. He was sentenced to death. Jason Eric Massey was executed April 3rd, 2001. And that's it.
0: Well,
1: that they actually went through with it. See, back in the 90s and stuff, they'd go ahead and kill you. They didn't wait twenty thirty.
2: Exactly, Exactly. Now they, they, they killed him pretty quickly. They went ahead and did it. Got it done. Yeah, they. <coughs> oh, my oh my god. god. <coughs> <coughs> That's what
0: you
2: get. They killed him pretty quick though. So what did you think? That yeah. was pretty darn interesting. I thought that it would be, but you know, he's I a loser. Actually, I actually learned about it on Forensic Files, and I thought it was pretty pretty cool. So I just I went ahead and did it.
0: All right. When Trooper Ronald
1: Rooker pulled into the parking lot at the Columbia City office of Oregon State, police where he worked the swing shift, he likely thought it would be another routine Sunday, merely patrolling U.S. Highway 30, maybe occasionally handing out traffic tickets to speeding motorists en route to Portland from Astoria. Or vice versa. Rooker's territory of jurisdiction wasn't equally all that exciting. However, in spite of the mundaneness he had learned to count upon, Rooker, like all lawmen, was trained to expect the unexpected. What he unexpectedly encountered on this particular Sunday was unlike anything he'd ever experienced before. Hey,
2: you know what, but I sort of understand a little bit why police... Would shoot a person because like okay if if a person just say like acts like he's about to pull out a gun or something right, like that, I'm
1: gonna shoot you. you don't know what you know what I'm not yeah. waiting to see I mean if you're it's not gonna wait to see if it's a freaking my, cell phone okay, here is my count on it, and I don't care what color you are or whatever if you a man or a woman, but if a police officer if I'm a police officer and I tell you to. Or put your hands up. Then put your hands up. Yeah, I mean, don't reach in your pocket and exactly. then say, "Oh, I was getting a cell phone."
2: And then whenever, and then whenever it's all said and done, then it's on purpose.
1: Yeah, no. If they say put your hands up, you're supposed to put your hands up. That's I know, is, but too.
2: that's how society takes it these days. Well, oh, the police shoot you on purpose? And all that he was doing was reaching Oh, I'm saying if they say stop, you or, ought to
1: stop, and not keep
2: running. I mean, I sure wouldn't. Um, the trying to reach into
1: my freaking pocket. The homicide which occurred in Columbia County on Valentine's Day, February 14th of 1982 was so horrendously brutal that most area residents are reluctant to even talk about it still, preferring instead to simply try and forget that it ever happened. But happened it did. And the story that I'm about to tell you is not the toned down version, which you'll find many other places on the internet and in newspapers. Well, it's glad it's that it's not toned down because we need to hear everything. Instead, it's going to be the shocking, bizarre, unvarnished account of a homicidal rage of such unleashed savagery that ultimately ended the life of a young woman and her unborn child. Da-da. Jesus
2: Christ, how do you even think of those types of words? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm just saying, that's a lot more syllables than I can pronounce.
1: (laughs) Well, that person did say, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. It had been raining off and on throughout most of the day, and the fact that the sky was overcast with clouds brought on the darkness earlier than usual as the afternoon turned into early evening. Trooper Rucker was driving south on Highway 30 towards the small community of Scappoose. (laughs) What? Scappoose. That's not how you say it. S-C-A-P-P-O-O-S-E. Scappoose. Scappoose, but that still ain't even better. (laughs) When he spotted two dark figures outlined by the dim peripheral rays of the car's headlights lying several feet apart on the hillside opposite him. Were there two people lying there? Yeah. He made a U-turn and pulled onto the soft shoulder of the road. It was difficult to tell what was lying there as his vision was impaired by the darkness, the falling rain, and the motion from the car's windshield wipers. He decided to investigate further. All right. As he put on his Smokey the Bear hat and grabbed his heavy-duty flashlight, Trooper Rooker... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Trooper Rooker. Trooper Rooker. Did he grab a Sandy Dandy notebook too? <coughs> he had that in his body. Noted that he was only a few yards from the entrance to Columbia Memorial Gardens, a cemetery which lie just over the hillside he was about to check out. He had an eerie feeling that night. Was it gas? <laughs> He later said in retrospect during an interview as he headed toward the first dark figure. Upon reaching it, however, Rooker discovered that it was merely a backpack, gold in color with a blue jacket draped over one end of it. It looked as if the backpack had been soiled or stained in certain areas, but with only the limited illumination from his flashlight, it was difficult to tell just what the stains consisted of. Could have been poo. Could have been anything. Could have been anything. Using his flashlight to guide him through the darkness, Trooper Rooker proceeded toward the second figure, which was lying in some grass above the highway from the gold backpack. He soon discovered, however, it was just another backpack. You've got to be Green in color. Yeah, but there's got to be people around it. There's two... Well, I guess it don't have to be. But. With another blue jacket draped over it and a stocking cap lying next to it. It was at this point that Ruger thought he'd heard a voice in the distance. Was it the backpacks talking? And I think I'm going crazy. His curiosity was now aroused. He climbed up the embankment, crossed a set of railroad tracks, and entered the northwestern edge of the cemetery. Plus, you're in a cemetery... <laughs> I don't at know. Night, I don't know if I'd stop there. He could hear the voice more clearly now and was able to discern that it was that of a male. As he approached the voice, he saw a human figure silhouetted by the darkness kneeling over another human. Why would you walk to it? Well, he's a policeman. Well, at least pull out your gun or something. He's got a flashlight. Oh my goodness! But it was too dark to see what was happening. At this point, however, Ruker could hear the male voice say, It's okay, man, it's okay. Ah, he's a stoner. But he was unable to determine if the male subject was speaking to him or the figure lying on the ground. As it got closer, Ruker shined his light on the two figures and saw that the kneeling person had his thumbs pushed firmly into the eyeballs oh of the other person. Oh, my goodness rotating his thumbs in circular motions until one of the person's eyeballs popped out about an inch out of its socket. Could you ever do that? No.
2: What if it? What if somebody offered you like a billion dollars? Would you ever stick your thumb in somebody's eye socket and poke their eyeball out if they were willing to let you? Oh, yes, I would. Are you joking? No,
1: for a billion dollars? Yes. I wouldn't do it for anything. Willing, no, 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 no. That is disgusting. I couldn't do it. Horrified at what he saw, Ruker knew that the person had to either be dead or unconscious because the person made no movement and made no sound. No one, he thought, could withstand that kind of pain if he or she were alive and conscious. At that point, the man got up, looked at Ruker, and started moving toward the trooper. Ruker stayed calm, keeping his flashlights beam on the man. <laughs> But nonetheless, he placed his hand firmly on his holstered gun, not knowing what state of mind the man was in. Okay, if the man had Pull his, it out! If the man was just digging out somebody's eyeballs, I'm sure his state of mind isn't the greatest.
2: I mean, he might have been on bath salts or something. Yeah, but still, state of mind
1: would not be the greatest. Oh, no, it wouldn't be good at all. Okay. Ruker began talking to him and persuaded him to go with him. On the way to the patrol car, the man began to resist, even though he was handcuffed. But Ruger put his hand on his gun and tightened his grip on the man with the other. He decided to go along peacefully. 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 When he had the man locked safely inside his patrol car, Ruger noted that his captive's long brown and curly shoulder-length hair, as well as his face, hands, and clothing were literally covered in blood.
2: I don't know if I'd trust him sitting in the back of my patrol car. No, I'd have him sit outside the patrol car. I mean, like, I'm just saying, like, I'd be so scared that they might end up... Could move the little bars and stuff that's right there. I don't know.
1: I just... Although the man in his late teens or early 20s was wearing a t-shirt and jeans, Rooker thought it was odd that he was wearing socks but no shoes. I mean, I do that. I know, but, like... Maybe odd, but I'm thinking maybe the blood all over him's odd. Yeah,
2: instead of socks
1: with no yeah. shoes. <laughs> That's the person that says, Why are you wearing no shoes? Yeah. Boy, you going to catch cold. <laughs> Deciding not to speak with the young man at this point, Ruger called in for backup <laughs> help and returned to the cemetery to determine exactly what the situation was. Using his flashlight, Rooker saw that the human form lying on the ground was a young, dark-haired female, now quite dead, who had most assuredly succumbed to her injuries before Rooker arrived at the scene. Although she was now severely mutilated, Rooker guessed that she had been quite pretty. But now, in her present, unsightly state, the young woman was difficult to look at without becoming nauseous. So she was... Dead already? Yes. Did did he dig her up? No. Well, no, we'll get there. Just the same, Rooker took note of his observations while he waited for backup personnel to arrive. He noted that the victim was lying flat on her back, her legs bent so that her knees and thighs extended upward, with her feet planted firmly on the ground, her heels nearly touching her buttocks. Her heels? Yes. She was wearing a t-shirt which read, all natural ingredients, no artificial sweeteners, no preservatives added. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> With a bra underneath. She was also wearing blue jeans and panties, both of which were pulled down below her knees exposing her genitals. And was wearing tennis shoes and two pairs of socks, one pink and one blue, one pulled over, two yellow socks. Okay, that's a little tacky. In addition, holes were noted in the growing area of the elastic band of her pants, and there were sections of a fishing pole protruding from her vagina. Already aghast at what he saw, Ruger was shocked still further when he observed that the victim's feet were tied together with rope or cord, and the suspect had used slipknots on rope or the cord to bind the victim's wrist and neck in such a manner that if the victim struggled, the ropes would tighten around her oh, neck and choke
2: her. I've seen those types of knots and stuff. I have no idea how they do them, though. It's so fascinating.
1: Yeah. Abdominal wounds were also discernible, as were wounds to her eyes and nose. A short time later, additional Oregon State Police units arrived at the scene, as did Columbia County District Attorney Martin Sells and his chief investigator, Dalton Derrick. After their observations of the crime scene and the victim, Sells and Derrick turned the scene over to evidence technicians from the Oregon State Police Crime Labs in Portland. Oregon. Ohio. Uh, Um... Located under the victim's buttocks, the investigators discovered two very large, extensively rusted nails, which technician Chris Johnson, directing crime lab operation, placed and labeled in an appropriate container for transport back to the labs in Portland. Where were you just reading? Huh?
2: Where were you just reading? Where are you Never Whenever you said Portland.
0: Right. That was it.
2: Did I say, well, You what said was Oregon. It? Was it Oregon? Yeah. I thought it was Ohio. No. There's a Portland, Ohio, right? Not that I know of. Uh, (laughs) Oh.
0: Okay.
1: Also found at the same location were two blood-stained sections of a fishing rod, eight inches long, and the other six inches. They also found two blood-stained, broken, and spent sections of roadside flare. Trooper Roberg took photos of crime scene, including shots of the victim from every angle. He also took photos of the suspect who had a large large amount of blood over both eyes and blood splattered over his face. It it was noted by investigators that the suspect had several circular-type wounds near the center of his right palm and that his hands were also bloody. His hands were also photographed. The suspect's clothing was confiscated at the crime scene to prevent destruction or loss of evidence. And the patrol car in which he had been secured in was impounded and taken to the police crime labs where it would be processed in search of strands of the victim's hair. What I'm thinking is
2: he just ruined a good fishing pole. Yeah, he did. Unless it was hard broke.
1: Yeah. Cool. They weren't going to take any chances on losing potential evidence, no matter how minute it might be. In the meantime, the suspect was taken to a local hospital, all the while being reminded of his rights, where urine and blood samples were taken to determine whether drugs of any kind were present. He was also interrogated briefly, after which fingernail scrapings were obtained. He was transferred into the Columbia County Jail and was identified as 20-year-old Delmar Anholt, Jr. Meanwhile, back at the cemetery, the investigators were still gathering evidence when Columbia County Medical Examiner Dr. John Brookhart arrived at the scene to make a preliminary examination to make sure it was okay to move the body and get it ready for transport to Portland, where a definitive autopsy would be performed by state medical examiner. Brookhart noted that there were external wounds resulting from multiple punctures to the lower abdomen. There were superficial abrasions, as were severe burns in the area of the victim's anus and vagina. He noted the presence of a metal spike that was embedded in the right pelvic region and noted that a fishing pole was also extruding from the victim's vagina. A metal... Spike. Spike? How
2: long was it? I don't know. It was at least, you know. at least three inches, I would think. I mean, it's a metal spike, yeah, so like, I would say even longer. Yeah,
1: I'm thinking like I'm a thinking railroad like a, spike. I'm thinking
2: like a spike, like a railroad yeah, spike. Like yeah, like eight, ten inches. Yeah. That that and would that's thick. That top. would hurt. Yeah.
1: There were also mo- multiple puncture wounds of the face and both of the eyes, as well as lacerations and abrasions of the victim's nose and face. He entered into his records that the victim was pregnant at the time of her death. Oh, no. And that the unborn child had also died. He made note of the fact that the victim's hands and feet were bound with cord, and after taking a rectal temperature, the victim's body was placed inside the yellow body bag and taken to the county
0: morgue in Portland. It
1: was the worst thing that he had seen said the county district attorney. The victim was eight and a half months pregnant, so almost about pop. Oh, wow. There were these ten-penny spikes used for construction, so that's what it was. Ten-penny? Yeah. What? Ten spikes, like...
0: Oh, ten spikes. Still, that would hurt. That's that's still like six inches, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, actually... Jabbed into her abdomen all the way in there to where the baby Ow, was. Ow! The God! The spikes hurt. were eight or nine inches long, and as big in diameter as a man's finger. Good God! You know how bad that would hurt. And they were blunt or dull on the ends, so that would have even been worse. Yeah, because it wouldn't just go in. You have to shove it. Her eyes. Oh, Oh my Lord. That was a sneeze. Gosh. Her (laughs) eyes were gouged out way down deep into the sinuses, and her nose was practically cut off. Well, I
2: thought the sinuses were, like, right behind your eyes, but I guess they're not.
1: Just about everything you could do to the person, the suspect did. At that point in time, I think the officer did a terrific job. Cell said that the additional evidence taken by the crime labs included the two backpacks found by Trooper Rooker. I mean, I think that he did pretty good, too. I mean, yeah. He did his, what he could do. Yeah. Which, well, he got the suspect. Without I mean, what killing Nothing him.
2: he could have done for the woman, for the girl. No, but I'm saying, like, the suspect. I he mean, got him in. At least he yeah. didn't shoot him. No. Yeah.
1: Um, the backpacks had been stained with blood. And he, they got the black stocking cap, a burlap sack, cigarette rolling papers, three very large, extensively rusted nails. That was in addition to the ones that were found up under the butt. The
2: While we there, two backpacks and no
1: car. A bloodstained white comb, 30 inches of blood-stained white cotton rope, and additional sections of fishing rods, both ends broken with bloodstains and human tissue adhering to the ends. Oh my God! Additionally, it had been determined that the bloody jeans of the suspect had been stained with her own blood, as had her multicolored long-sleeved shirt. According to DA cells, investigators identified the victim as nineteen-year-old Tara Lee McCarthy, the suspect's girlfriend. Inquiries into her background revealed that Tara came from a rather large family of five kids, and that she had lived. And that she had lived in the St. John's area of North Portland. She had gone to school at Roosevelt High, where she had met Ann Holt through a relative. When she was 15, Tara's family decided to move away from St. John's, but Tara refused to leave with them. She insisted on remaining there so she could finish high school at Roosevelt. She was invited to live with Anholt and his family while she continued school. Her parents eventually agreed to the arrangement and she moved in with the Anholz. The investigators learned that it wasn't long before she and Anholz began sleeping together. And I don't mean just sleeping going night.
2: Exactly. Whenever I was younger, I thought, like, why do people say we're sleeping together? Who cares? And I'm like, oh. (laughs) But do you like the way that people do they do like finding the suspect and the and the w- woman dead first, and then explaining all that and what was found and everything. Then going into the backstory, or would you rather be like the backstory up and coming until the?
0: I like it like this. I like finding it and then going back. Okay.
1: Okay. A background check. Aunt Holt revealed that he attended a Catholic school until 7th grade, at which time he began to use and abuse marijuana Gross, and tobacco. Of course. <laughs> he was a poor student in high school, in and out of trouble, until he was eventually suspended from Roosevelt. As a result, he did not graduate. Although he came from a good, respected family, Aunt Holt's home life was nothing he could brag about, due primarily to his own self-centered actions. Things got continually worse, and at one point, Ann Hope threatened to kill his sister. As a result, his mother called the juvenile detention authorities, and he was placed in a detention home for a few months. It was also revealed that at one point in his youth, he was sent to a place called Sun Village, a school for youths in trouble. Wow, and it's called Sun Village. Yes. Yeah. At one point, while living with Tara, Anholt was charged and convicted of first-degree theft and placed on probation. However, he violated the conditions of his probation and was sentenced to Oregon Correctional Institution for 14 months. Tara was true to him during this time and visited him often when she could get a day off from various waitressing jobs she held while going to school and living with Anholt's relatives. So she was in high school, had a couple of waitressing jobs, seeing her boyfriend in jail.
2: Yeah, I think I just stopped. Yeah. Quit. I would've just <laughs> moved out with my parents. Yeah, I just quit everything.
1: When Anhol got out of Oregon Correctional Institution, detectives learned he very rarely worked. Surprise, surprise. Oh wow. That's all that marijuana and tobacco. Yeah, usually
2: they get out and they go and do the exact same thing.
1: When he did, it was for a very short time, often only a half day at a time. While, wow. Instead, when he wasn't getting into trouble for criminal mischief, he did a lot of fishing, camping, and wandering around, with Tara accompanying him nearly everywhere he went. Really? During the course of her relationship with Anhol, the cops learned Tara became pregnant four known times. Four? What happened to the other three? The first time... Ann Holt sent her to an abortion clinic in Seattle, somebody had told him about, where she had the pregnancy terminated. Ann Holt demanded that she have her second and third pregnancies aborted also, and near the delivery date of her fourth pregnancy, Ann Holt killed her and attempted to take the baby, which he believed wrongly belonged to another man. Well, why? I
2: don't understand. Well, if you're trying to save the baby... He wasn't trying to save the baby. You said take the baby. You was trying to take the baby, like kill it? Is that why he showed the um spikes in? Yes. Okay.
1: The investigators also uncovered during their probing allegations made by acquaintances of Van Holt that he was an occultist, that he and others went out on one occasion and somehow obtained a cow or a calf and butchered it during some sort of ritual. However, the investigators were unable to establish just how deeply involved he was with the occult, and as a result, were not able to establish a link between his alleged occult activities and the torture-murder of Tara McCarthy. Following a thorough autopsy on the victim's body by Dr. William Brady, state medical examiner, the facts of the case became more grisly with each of his findings. According to Brady, Tara had injuries to both of her eyes, to her nose, cheeks, lips. Both of her eyes were bruised and swollen, indicating that an application of force against the eyeballs, and there were lacerations across the victim's left upper eyelid. Puncture wounds present near her eyes extended down into the girl's face and sinuses to a depth of an inch or more. Oh my God. Her lips were cut and bruised and her tongue was clenched tightly between her teeth, an indication she endured extreme pain prior to her death. Brady's conclusion was that the victim died from asphyxia by strangulation and by piercing of her body with a fishing pole. Ow. Causing the injuries to the uterus and to the liver. Liver. To the liver? <laughs> Aside from complete dis. Dismember it and decapitation cases. Brady said that this was the most severe case of mutilation he had ever seen.
2: You know what? Why do we we do like. Well, okay, we do like the cases where.
0: I don't know how to describe it.
2: Okay. Like one week we do. Like, almost similar cases, but yours is always the worst of the torture. Yeah, usually. I
1: don't know. (laughs) In (laughs) the meantime, lab tests performed on Delmar Anholt's blood samples taken shortly after his arrest revealed that he had taken methamphetamines and amphetamines, both of which are powerful forms of speed. Also, after being charged and indicted for murder... Anholt was examined by Medford, Oregon psychiatrist Dr. Hugh Gardner. Dr. Gardner found that Anholt didn't have a value system that is normally associated with maturity, citing as an example that Anholt once quit a construction job in order to spend the money that he'd made. Gardner said that Anholt also told him that he bought drugs such as Valium Speed, pot, and beer just to make him feel good but said that he didn't like heroin or cocaine. Dr. Gardner also said that Anholt bragged about his sex life at first, but later told him that he started masturbating when he was in his early teens and had had intercourse with only two different females, one of whom was his victim, and the other, an older woman he'd had sex with when he was younger. Probably about 70. A 70-year-old with... (laughs) Gardner's diagnosis of Anholt was that he manifested an antisocial personality, was narcissistic and self-centered, and held no value for human life other than his own. So he's crazy. According to Gardner, drugs did not interfere with Anholt's ability to form the intent to commit the murder of Tara McCarthy or anything else that he wanted to do. While lodged in the Columbia County Jail, Anholt was interrogated by investigators several times and during the course of the sessions, the officers learned that there had been some explosive arguments between Anholt and some of his relatives regarding an inheritance left by his deceased father. It was after one such argument the cops were told that Anholt and Tara decided to take off on a trip to Long Beach, Washington to stay at his family's beach cabin. Anholt said, they were leaving because everything was coming down in the city. All the sluts, whores, and prostitutes were going to get it. Anholt told the detectives that he and Tara then packed up their sleeping bags, backpacks, and other camping gear and left the house, hitching a ride on North Willamette Boulevard in Portland near the University of Portland campus. Anholt said that he and Tara had been picked up by a motorist driving a pickup truck and that. They had been taken as far as a tavern in Linton, just outside of the Portland city limits. Anhole said the driver of the pickup was carrying two small puppies, one of which was given to Tara at her request.
2: Aww, that's so sweet. Isn't
1: it? Anhole, I wonder if it was a little tuck-tuck. I don't know. Tuck-tuck? Anhole added that he and Tara continued <laughs> hitchhiking toward the coast and were eventually picked up by a man driving another pickup. This time, they got as far as Scapoose. <laughs> when the pickup broke down and had to be towed, they had been dropped off near the cemetery. Derek and Brober began checking out Anholt's story to see if any of it could be corroborated. They eventually located the driver of the first vehicle who told them basically what Anholt had said. The driver said they talked, smoked a joint, a pot, and stopped at a store for a can of beer on their way to Linton. Eventually, they stopped at the tavern, which was the driver's destination. The officers then checked with the local wrecking yard in Scapoose and learned that a pickup had been towed in for repair on the day in question, February 14th. After obtaining the pickup owner's name and address from the wrecking yard, they contacted him and again, and story was corroborated. The driver told the investigators that he had picked up two hitchhikers and their dog. During the interviews, Anholt told the detectives that he and Terry came upon an old barn not far from the cemetery and went inside to get out of the rain for a while. He told cops that inside the barn there was an old mattress on the floor, a table, and a couple of chairs. Anholt said that he was wearing a knife and a scabbard on his belt that day but had lost it, probably inside the barn. Anholt said that he had been thinking about using the knife on Tara. According to the investigators, from statements obtained from Anholt, Tara and Anholt finally left the barn and walked on down the road toward St. Helens. About a quarter of a mile later, they entered the cemetery located on the opposite side of the road from the barn. It was while walking through the cemetery that Anholt said he asked Tara to confess to Jesus Christ and God, which she refused to do. It was here that he did her in because she was carrying the demon seed. Yeah, but was it really his child? Yes, but he thought it was the demon seed. Oh my goodness. It was the devil and had to be taken care of, he said. And that appeared to be what his motive was. The way he murdered her was brutal, but a lot of it, the violence was directed toward that demon baby inside her womb. This time she wanted to have that baby, he said. Anhalt claimed that she had a bad seed in her and that she had been fooling around on him. Well then why did why did he um
2: ki- <laughs> mutilate, what do you call it? Mutilate her very badly if his main target was the child. Well not, a lot of it was through the abdomen and vagina.
0: Why not just like do some quick stabs to the abdomen? Well I'm sure some of it was rap at her.
2: Well, some of it, but that doesn't make I don't, for the gouging of the eyes, that's just a little I mean, odd. I
0: just wanted to, I yeah. guess. But she was dead then. Oh well, yeah. Um.
1: She had gone. She had left him a few prior occasions because he was so mean to her. Now she had gone to live with her sister on one or more occasion and had gone to stay with friends on another occasion. Two or three months prior to her becoming pregnant, she had left him and lived with a girlfriend for about three weeks. During this time, she had gone out with another guy, wow. told Ann Holt that she had sexual relations with the other guy. Well, Ann claimed that when she became pregnant by him, that it was a bad demon seed and wasn't his baby. But you could prove that she hadn't become pregnant by the other guy due to the passage or lapse of time. The sexual relations with the other guy was two or three months prior to her becoming pregnant. So we backtrack by talking to the other guy she'd been with and with friends she'd stay with. She was gone for about three weeks, and the rest of the time she was always with Anholt, who absolutely did not want her to have that baby. Was the intent to kill present inside the mind of the suspect at the time of the homicide? Was the killing premeditated? Well, the psychiatrist who examined Anholt believed Anholt formed the intent quite some time before he did it. He had told them through that he had thought about it while they were sitting in the barn across from the cemetery, and he was sure that he formed the intent earlier, probably prior to leaving Portland, maybe even thought about it for several days beforehand. An interesting question was raised due to the killing, because there were two murders that took place, said DA Sells, the baby and the murder mother. But under Oregon law, the definition of a human being prohibited, prohibited us from prosecuting on the part of the baby, because according to the definition of the law in Oregon, it has to take a breath. If the baby doesn't, It doesn't matter even if it was due any day. And it could have lived. But if it That's never took Oregon. a breath. yes. But when he began the acts, which led to Tara's murder, he actually induced labor. And the baby came out of the victim's uterus. But it couldn't get into the vaginal canal because of the foreign objects that were inserted into the vagina. And it didn't have anywhere to go. So the baby suffocated or drowned.
0: So, it did take a breath. No, it didn't, because it never could come out of her vagina. That's not very fair, is it? No. it was trying to.
2: Yeah, that's not fair. It's his fault that it won't come out. Yeah.
0: And Hope said when he got to the cemetery,
1: he was looking at this big mural painted on the cemetery's mausoleum, which is not far from where the killing occurred. The mural depicts Jesus with a flock of sheep. That's when he said he decided to kill her, and he told her so. She took off running through the cemetery the with an in pursuit. He caught her, knocked her down. He said he punched her in the stomach several times. After tying her up in such a manner that whenever she struggled by pulling her hands and arms, a rope would tighten around her neck and choke her. He got into his backpack, took out the spikes, and drove them into her body. He said he intended to bury her there in the cemetery, but he got caught before he could get the job done. Well, if that stupid mural wasn't, wouldn't have been there, she might have lived. Well, how about did Anhold ever say why he tortured Tara so much, rather than just kill her quickly and be done That's with That's what it? I was asking. Well, his intent was to kill that demon seed inside of her. And he directed most of his actions toward the baby, her entire abdominal area. He was angry because he had to bite the skin to make holes in it so he could drive the spikes in there. Good God. He had the imprint of the head of one of those spikes in the palm of his hand where he was pounding them with his hand to drive them into her body. He had her blood all over his face and hands. He said that his intent wasn't to kill Tara, oh but God. he had to kill the demon seed inside of her and she had to go along with the baby. According to the prosecutor, none of the spikes which injured the victim's face penetrated the brain. Although the spikes entered only into the sinus cavities, the medical examiner believed that although those wounds were not fatal, they were likely the most painful of the entire ordeal. Wow. He eventually went down to the highway with the backpacks and laid them on the embankment. That's when Trooper Rooker, He's so stupid. Came along and discovered the backpacks lying several feet apart on the embankment and explains that why they were stained with the victim's blood. He said he came back to make sure she was dead, but she was still convulsing. So he decided he'd better finish her off and he got back on top of her and went to work again. That's when Trooper, That so she was still alive. She was convulsing still. Oh, uh, that's when Trooper Rooker came yes. to the rescue. One of the defenses used in the trial was that Anholt was high on drugs and didn't know what he was doing when he killed Tara, but that was easily disproved. From what Anholt told them and from what everyone else said who was with him prior to the murder, they could determine approximately how much marijuana amphetamines he'd had. And based on that, the psychiatrist and other doctors could give an opinion as to whether or not he'd taken enough drugs so that he couldn't think or rationalize. And they all agreed that Ann Holt did not have enough drugs in him that would prevent him from being able to form the intent. On May 11, 1982, Delmore Ann Holt Jr. was convicted of the torture murder of Tara McCarthy. On May 25th, Columbia County Circuit Judge James A. Mason sentenced Ann Holt to life in prison. However, it should be noted that because of the utilization of a matrix system, the state parole board actually will determine the actual time served. Okay. That's what I got. Well, that was pretty good. Help you go to sleep at night.
2: Well, I'm pretty sure that yours was... Oh, my goodness. So yours has fishing poles stuck up places, and mine, her nipples got cut off. I
0: mean, yours was pretty gruesome, too.
2: But, yes, both are very sad. But yours are, I mean, the eyes were gouged out to the sinuses. Yeah, That's not normal. And he had
1: to bite holes in her in order exactly. to get the that's, spikes
2: That's her. not, that, that was a lot going on that would hurt. That would be so freaking painful. I would definitely take a bullet to the head before, before any of that. Most definitely. Yeah. But that was really interesting. <laughs> okay, well, I'm starting to sniffle and snot. Yeah, I'm sorry throughout the whole, <laughs> <coughs> oh, you've been oh my
1: God, up. I can't, I'm, I really need to call. Anyway. I know. I'm trying to wait. Throughout. They're Throughout. They're so we're going to have to <laughs> cut this one out. Throughout. As always, I have been Stan. <laughs> and I'm always true. And we'll see you next time. Don't yep. let us catch you being bad in the boondock. Huh? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> see ya.